Good morning, church. Would you stand if you're able for the reading of God's word? Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 33. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous ones. Praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the lyre. Make music to him with a ten-stringed harp. Sing a new song to him. Play skillfully on the strings with a joyful shout. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is trustworthy. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the Lord's unfailing love. The heavens were made by the word of the Lord, and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water of the sea into a heap. He puts the depths into storehouses. Let the whole earth feel, fear the Lord. Let all its inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came into being. He commanded, and it came into existence. The Lord frustrates the counsel of the nations. He thwarts the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Happy is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people he has chosen to be his own possession. The Lord looks down from heaven. He observes everyone. He gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth from his dwelling place. He forms the hearts of all of them. He considers all of their works. A king is not saved by a large army. A warrior will not be rescued by great strength. The horse is a false hope for safety. It provides no escape by its great power. But look, the Lord keeps his eye on those who fear him, those who depend on his faithful love to rescue them from, the, from death and to keep them alive in famine. We wait for the Lord. He is our help and shield. For our hearts rejoice in him because we trust his holy name. May your faithful love rest on us, Lord, for we put our hope in you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to our Sunday morning gathering at First City Church. My name is Paul, and I have the pleasure of preaching one more time before we welcome back our lead pastor uh, next week. So we're continuing our sermon series in the book of Psalms, picking up where we left off last week with Psalm 33. And to begin, I want to engage a particular people group in the room. But the rest of you, you'll, you'll want to listen in. See, many of you, you now find yourself in a season called midlife. That season, it begins around the time you turn 40, and it typically extends into your 60s. It's a season that is very much, can be marked by significant transition and radical life change. Now, some refer to that radical life change as a midlife crisis. People are driven to do some unconventional things things less consistent with their prior character. For example, maybe they buy a dog, like, like a golden retriever, like we did at the Gardner house. Maybe you get two dogs, like another pastor in this church, Pastor Chris, just saying. So the Huffington Post recently identified seven purchases that may indicate you are experiencing a midlife crisis. And just for the record, buying a dog is not one of them. So let me offer this as an exercise 
to increase your awareness in case you may be having a midlife crisis. So purchase number one, home renovations. Feeling the need to do some significant remodeling in your home. By the way, that just seems normal. Uh, Two, luxury cars. I remember when my dad hit his midlife crisis, he didn't buy a luxury car, but he did purchase a convertible sports car that I got to drive. It was one of those manual transmissions, the kind you got to shift gears as it, as it accelerated, and it had the type of headlights that popped up when you, when you turned the lights on. That was fun. Gardener kids, don't get your hopes up. Three, beauty improvements, spending more money to enhance your face or skin or maybe even pursuing surgery. Four, dream vacations. Anyone know people who traveled to Europe recently? Five, tattoos. Six, new stylish clothes. And seven, new experiences. Okay, some, just, just so you guys know, my daughter, she wants me to jump out of an airplane. I so struggle with heights. I mean, I need to do it, but, but I think I could tell her jumping out of an airplane may be a sign that I was having a midlife crisis, which I'm not, so I shouldn't do it. So in a, in a more serious vein, a midlife crisis is, is experienced when people encounter this significant life transition, kids leaving the home, losing parents to declining health or death, coming to terms with where you're at in life, like changing job roles, these transitions push people to reevaluate, questioning decisions they have made, things like career choices, or who you decided to marry, or the ways you have raised your children if you have children, or the ways you've chosen to spend your money. As people reevaluate, some begin to experience depression, or remorse, or anxiety, or maybe even anger. A midlife crisis is a bit of a crisis of confidence. Now to invite the rest of you back in, midlife is not the only season that triggers a crisis of confidence. Young people experience a crisis of confidence, not having confidence in who you were created to be, struggling to make decisions, struggling to be in committed relationships. Older age groups experience a crisis of confidence as they face declining health, or downsize a home, or begin to work less. The prevalence of these crises of confidence is one reason people today believe there are increasing rates of depression and anxiety and suicide. Have you ever experienced a crisis of confidence? Now, there can be a crisis of confidence that one experiences more generally in a season of life, but there can also be a crisis of confidence experienced in more narrow ways, in specific situations. For example, when it comes to your ability to finish a project, or your ability to persist in a difficult marriage, or your ability to implement some long overdue boundaries with someone who mistreats you or with following through on a spiritual discipline or a life habit. You come to the place, you say something like, I can't do this. I quit. This is hopeless. Psalm 33 is a passage that conveys praise and hope and adoration. Rather than a crisis of confidence, it will invite us to experience 
considerable confidence. If many of the Psalms articulate struggles we have with faith, helping us express disappointment and doubt, Psalm 33 is going to offer something different. There is no confession of doubt or confession of sin. Instead, it is a psalm expressing confidence in the character of God. So the title of my sermon this morning is No Crisis of Confidence. Now, some of the best ways offered by our culture to address a crisis of confidence is to have greater confidence in self, to believe in yourself and your abilities, or to to remember your personal purpose or your personal mission. Psalm 33 invites us to consider something different. Our big idea will be contemplating who is in control catalyzes considerable confidence. Knowing who is in control frees us from a crisis of confidence. It gives us hope and assurance knowing God is in control. So if you have a Bible or Bible app, go ahead and open it up to Psalm 33. As we explore this passage and this big idea, we're going to examine the confidence that the psalmist invites us to experience and express how it is catalyzed by contemplating how God is in control. And then we're going to consider a few ways this, that type of confidence is cultivated. So in verses 1 through 3, the psalm begins with a sense of celebration. We are invited to rejoice at the goodness and greatness of the Lord. There is a call to rejoice and a call to sing, to get out the guitar, get out the piano, get out the tambourine, and make some music. Those first three verses seem very much like a call to worship. In fact, if you look at the structure of Psalm 33, it seems to very much follow a worship service type format you might experience at a church like First City. There is this call to worship. It will move to a profession or confession of faith Then there's going to be a body of the psalm, which is content reflecting on the character of God. And that message, it even has three points. And the psalm concludes with a benediction or blessing, as God's people are sent out to live in the world. So if Psalm 33 invites us to celebrate and sing and worship what are, we, what are we singing about? What are we, what are we celebrating? Let's look at verses 4 and 5. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is trustworthy. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the Lord's unfailing love. So this is the confession of faith the psalmist offers. It is a confession declaring who God is, how he functions, and what marks his character. It is very much a confession of considerable confidence in the word and works of the Lord. When it comes to the word, whatever the Lord has decreed, it is right. Other ways that word right may be translated from Hebrew is upright or straight or level or correct. The psalmist is inviting us to confess confidence in God's word. It is not something that produces faulty results or unpredictable patterns. God's people can rely on God's word because it is right. In addition to his 
word being right, his works are trustworthy. They are faithful, they are firm, they are steady. Whereas our circumstances may shift, or the people we may be around expose us to evil, the Lord is different. The Lord is different. We can have confidence in his character. Further, God loves what is good and what is just. He loves righteousness and justice. This love that cares for what is good and what is just, the whole earth is filled with it. The psalmist is confessing considerable confidence in the character of the Lord. The psalmist then moves on to contemplate three spheres of life and how God relates to those three spheres. Those three spheres. This is the the three-point sermon I mentioned earlier. So here's the the first in verses 6 and 7. The heavens were made by the word of the Lord, and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water of the sea into a heap. He puts the depths into storehouses. So sphere one is describing how God relates to creation. Now, on the one hand, the psalmist is reflecting on the power of the word of the Lord. How God said, let there be light, and there was light. How the word of God created the land and the sea and all that is in it. Those familiar with the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1, where we read the description of how God created the heavens and the earth by the power of his word, you see echoes of that chapter in what the psalmist is contemplating. But the psalmist is expressing something more than that. Specifically, how God controls the chaos. Or how he brings order out of disorder. That's part of his nature. That's who he is. See, that language, water of the sea, and the depths, those are traditionally associated with chaos or disorder. As the psalmist contemplates God's character in creation, he affirms God controls the chaos. God brings order to disorder. Psalm 104 says it this way, You covered it, he's referring to the earth, You covered it with the deep as if it were a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, the water fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. Mountains rose and valleys sank to the place you established for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. They will never cover the earth again. In our fallen form of God's creation, we do see chaos. And that chaos is oftentimes caused by water, hurricanes, thunderstorms, floods. All of these produce damage and destruction. There is a way we continue to encounter chaos produced by the depths. Yet, when we look at the shape of creation, the containment of the oceans and the seas, the mountains and the valleys, how they cause the water to recede, it points to a God who ultimately controls the chaos. Contemplating who is in control catalyzes considerable confidence. So the first sphere we're considering is God's control over creation. The second sphere is encountered in verses 10 and 11. The Lord frustrates the counsel of the nations. He thwarts the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation 
to generation. So sphere two is how God relates to the nations, specifically how God controls the chaos of the nations and sometimes even creates the chaos experienced by the nations. That theme of how God controls or creates the the chaos experienced by the nations, it is frequently encountered in the Old Testament. For example, in chapter 19 of the book of Isaiah, the prophet declares, Look, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. Egypt's worthless idols will tremble before him, and Egypt will lose heart. I will provoke Egyptians against Egyptians. Each will fight against his brother and each against his friend. City against city, kingdom against kingdom. Egypt's spirit will be disturbed within it, and I will frustrate its plans. Then they will inquire of worthless idols, ghosts, mediums, and spiritists. You see, this chaos encountered by Egypt, it is not evidence that things are out of control, but rather that God is in control. As a nation chooses to reject the Lord in his ways, as that nation experiences chaos and disorder, it should not come as a surprise. It should be expected. In contrast, as the people of God, Sit under the counsel of the Lord. Something different should be experienced. As we reflect on the course of history, as we see how nation states wax and wane, how the people of God have endured, the church of God it has endured, the counsel of the nations is frustrated. But the counsel of the Lord endures forever. And the plans of his heart from generation to generation contemplating who is in control catalyzes considerable confidence. Now let's look at the third sphere the psalmist contemplates in verses 13 through 15. The Lord looks down from heaven. He observes everyone. He gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth from his dwelling place. He forms the hearts of them all. He considers all their works. So sphere three is how God relates to all the peoples of the earth. But here, what is being expressed is less how God, God controls by what he causes or creates, but more in how God cares and how God considers the actions of the people. He is not absent. He is not distant. There is nothing beyond his gaze. So the war taking place today in Ukraine, it is not beyond his gaze. The the suffering and persecution that people are being subjected to in nations like China or continents like Africa, the Lord considers all their works. The people in the desert, the people in the jungle, the people in the country, the people in the city, he sees them. He knows them, he made them, he cares for them, and he considers all their works. And in his care for all the peoples, there is a particular people God is attuned to. A a people he especially cares for and considers. You see, in point three of this sermon, like any good preacher, the psalmist goes gospel 
talking about how the people of God, those who fear him, are rescued and set apart. Here's verses 18 and 19. But look, the Lord keeps his eye on those who fear him, those who depend on his faithful love to rescue them from death and to keep them alive in famine. This special care of a people It affirms the rescue and redemption of God's people. For God's people at that time, they remember what God has done, rescuing them from slavery, keeping them safe from enemies, keeping them alive from famine. And it would lead them to trust in God's future acts of redemption. They had great confidence the Lord keeps his eye on those who fear him. But you and I, living at this point in redemptive history, we have more. Because the characteristics of God outlined in this chapter, they very much point to the characteristics of Christ. In Christ, we have a God-man who exerted control over creation. He calmed the chaos of the waves. He healed physical diseases. He silenced the sound of storms. In Christ, the word of God was made flesh. And the wisdom of Christ transcends the wisdom of the nations. He has ascended to rule. And in Christ, we have a Savior who sacrificed himself for all types of people. Those who put their trust in him will be rescued from death and kept from the ultimate famine, separation from him. For us, contemplating the word of Christ and the work of Christ, it catalyzes considerable confidence. So in contemplating how God relates to these three spheres of life, the psalmist is is affirming something theologians refer to as divine providence, regardless of how chaos may be encountered in creation or encountered in the nations or encountered in the peoples of the earth, God accomplishes his purposes. God rules and reigns. The implication of affirming God's promises is that you and I can function with considerable confidence regardless of our circumstances, regardless of what season of life we may may find ourselves in, regardless of what challenges we may encounter. Here's how the Heidelberg Catechism words what the psalmist is communicating. And this is a confession of faith dating back to 1563. Question. What do you understand by the providence of God? Answer, the almighty, everywhere, present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, richness and poverty, indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. As we contemplate how God relates to creation and relates to the nations and relates to all the peoples of the earth, how God governs and sustains and controls all things, we very much see how he has his children in mind.
Nothing that is taking place in our lives is beyond his scope or beyond his fatherly care. So contemplating who is in control catalyzes considerable confidence. So from here, I want to consider ways Psalm 33 would lead us to cultivate considerable confidence in God's character and in the circumstances we encounter day to day that, would, that we would be freed from experiencing a crisis of confidence. To do that, I, I want to tell you first about a bit of a crisis of confidence I experienced recently. So, so several years ago, I was on a similar career trajectory with a, another man my age. We'd gone to the same undergraduate school, the same physical therapy school, and eventually both took jobs in healthcare management. At a particular point, it seemed God was calling me out of healthcare management to work in ministry. Rather than coach therapy workers, I would coach leaders in the church. Rather than care for physical bodies, I would care for people's spiritual souls. He continued in healthcare management, worked hard, and has been rewarded accordingly. Whenever I see him, which happened recently, I'm reminded that if I would have stayed in healthcare management, my family may be much better off today financially. His house is bigger. His camper is bigger. I know he has more money and wealth set aside. So after seeing him, I woke up one morning knowing that I have a daughter in college who's struggling with money for school, knowing we have far less financial freedom than we would like, wondering, what if? What if I had made some different decisions? What if circumstances played out differently? If I'm honest, reflecting on those types of things, it makes me feel like a failure sometimes. I want to withdraw. This is how a crisis of confidence can manifest itself. What do the, the words of Psalm 33 invite people like me to cultivate? So first, there is a disposition referenced at least twice in this passage and referenced more indirectly a third time. Verse 8, let the whole earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Verse 18, again, but look, the Lord keeps his eye on those who fear him, those who depend on his faithful love. Verse 12 references this disposition of fearing or worshiping the Lord a little bit differently, a little more indirectly. Happy whose nation, happy is the nation whose God is the Lord very much implies surrender and submission. To cultivate considerable confidence, we are invited to fear him, to serve him, to surrender to him. Now, now some of you may wonder, what, what does fear have to do with cultivating considerable confidence? I mean, fear and confidence, those, those seem like they contradict one another. I bet if we were to look in a thesaurus, they would be antonyms. Well, when we fear God, we recognize that he is most ultimate. He is the greatest authority in our lives. Rather than fearing things like not having enough money, 
not being successful, not getting to do what we want to do, not having the type of family that we want to have, not having the affirmation of others, losing control in challenging circumstances, all of those things, they become less significant. We don't fear those things anymore when we fear the Lord. They have less power in our lives because God is the one we fear. He is the one thing we are afraid of. Further, fear has to do with what we respect or what we revere or what we are in awe of. When we fear the Lord, he is the one thing in the universe that we are in most awe of. So when we have a crisis of confidence, the answer isn't experiencing a lack of fear or cultivating a stronger belief in self. It is resetting to fear the right things or the right thing, the Lord. Here's author and pastor Tim Chester. We need a big view of God. To fear God is to respect, worship, trust, and submit to him. It's the proper response to his glory, holiness, power, love, goodness, and wrath. To have considerable confidence, we need to cultivate a fear of God. When we fear God, when we have a big view of God, we worship God. We don't worship things of this earth. We don't look to them for ultimate satisfaction. Here's verses 16 and 17. A king is not saved by a large army. A warrior will not be rescued by great strength. The horse is a false hope for safety. It provides no escape by its great power. Far too many of us, rather than fearing God, we fear not having enough earthly resources. Rather than look to the Lord for security, we look to things of this earth to provide security. So when those earthly things are plentiful, we are safe and secure. We experience considerable confidence because of the stash of our earthly resources. But when those earthly resources are scarce, when we doubt our abilities and skills, we become less confident and more afraid of the wrong things. Considerable confidence is cultivated as we embrace a disposition of fearing God. Second, considerable confidence is catalyzed as we contemplate his works. I mentioned earlier, some of the ways offered by our culture to address a crisis of confidence is to have a greater confidence in self, to, to believe in yourself and your abilities, to, to contemplate your most recent experiences or your past performance, to, to know your personal purpose and personal mission. But, but I think we all know, if we root our confidence in self, it will eventually fall flat. It either leads to a false sense of security or the reality is you and I will face decisions where we will be defeated, where we will look weak, where we will not get what we want. And in those moments, will we believe that we are defined by our faults and our failures or do we believe that something greater is at work? I was listening recently to an interview with Rain Wilson, the actor who played Dwight in The Office. He was saying how he and another actor from The Office, they were reflecting on their time making the show. And one of the things that stood out was how little they enjoyed it. 
There's always this pressure to prove yourself again. When they experienced success, they needed to act in a way to justify that success. So even in success, they experienced this crisis of confidence because they needed to justify that success. I've heard people like Madonna say something like, your confidence in self, it is only as good as your last performance. When the works you contemplate are works of self, that contemplation will fall flat. We must reset and consider the works of the Lord, which transcend self. Pastor John Piper, in his book, Providence, he writes these things about, that his literature professor said that had a profound impact on how he began to experience considerable confidence. I shall open my eyes and ears. Once every day, I shall simply stare at a tree, a flower, a cloud, or a person. We could also include, we can consider the state of the nations. I shall not then be concerned at all to ask what they are, but simply be glad that they are. I shall bet my life on the assumption that this world is not idiotic neither run by an absentee landlord, but that today, this very day, some stroke is being added to the cosmic canvas that in due course I shall understand with joy as a stroke made by the architect who calls himself Alpha and Omega. When we experience a crisis of confidence like I described earlier, it is critical to contemplate who is in control It's not me, and it's not no one. God is in control. Contemplating how God is in control catalyzes considerable confidence. But you you have to open your eyes and your ears. You, You have to, people, you have to stop scrolling. You have to you have to stop responding to text notification after text notification. You have to stop responding to Instagram notification after Instagram notification or be real notification after be real notification. Take your social media pick. You have to intend to compl- contemplate his works. As you read God's word, as you experience his works, consider his righteousness and his trustworthiness, how it's demonstrated in creation, how it's demonstrated over the nations and over all peoples. So this considerable confidence in God's control, it is cultivated as we fear the Lord, as we contemplate his works. And third, to cultivate considerable confidence, we wait for him. Here's how the psalm concludes in verses 20 through 22. We wait for the Lord. He is our help and shield For our hearts rejoice in him because we trust in his holy name. May your faithful love rest on us, Lord, for we put our hope in you. Okay, second quiz. This one one by show of hands. I want your participation. How many of you associate the word waiting with feelings of impatience? Maybe feelings of annoyance or frustration or, or even feelings of bitterness or resentment. Okay, it's not just me, thankfully. Okay, biblical waiting is not indicative of those types of feelings. 
Instead, it is eagerly anticipating and looking forward to more of God's redemptive acts. It is living in light of things like God doing a greater work in maturing us in the faith, or our future resurrection of the body, or living in light of Christ's return. This disposition of waiting for more acts of redemption, it is not waiting for our circumstances to change, but it is waiting for him. It is having confidence that God will act in the future. It is what you need to persist when things get hard. When you have a crisis of confidence. Things you commit to in the Christian life, committing to a church, committing to habits as a mother or a father, committing to a particular level of generosity, committing to to a spiritual habit or a practice, you will encounter challenges with those commitments. You will get bored with them. You will experience failure in them. You may experience a crisis of confidence. When that happens, what will give you the strength to move forward, to persevere? How you feel about a situation, how you feel about your ability to to succeed or the amount of success you've had in the past, or will you have confidence in something much greater than self? God's redemptive work in your life and in the lives of his people in the future. Perhaps a confession of faith many adopt when longing for a particular outcome, a particular change is Control what you can control. You guys have probably heard that. Put faith in what you can control and surrender the rest. We'll say there's some truth to this profession. It encourages agency and responsibility rather than passivity, and it rejects not being responsible for your actions. But perhaps a Christian confession of confidence would be, hey, we act because we know who is in control. We can be confident doing what we can do, not because of our abilities or because we know the outcome, but because we know he is in control. And I want you to see something here. Having considerable confidence, being rooted in hope. It does not mean we are content with how things are. In fact, waiting means We are longing for something different. We are not aloof to the fallenness and brokenness of this world. Contemplating how God is in control is not leading us to deny or dismiss disappointment. The Psalms of lament within the pages of Scripture would not lead us to adopt such an unbiblical position. But the discontent we experience, it doesn't drive us to be depressed or to experience a crisis of content confidence. Contemplating how God is in control, it leads us to affirm in disappointment. We can have considerable confidence. We can be confident in the character and care and control of our God because God will bring on more acts of his redemption and that will stir in his people. That will stir in them to sing a new song. Contemplating who is in control catalyzes considerable 
confidence. Friends, we live in a culture today where many are experiencing a crisis of confidence. The trend for suicide rates, the trends for depression and anxiety, those are rising for many age groups and many people groups. Some call the times we are living in an age of despair. As Christians, we have the opportunity. We are invited in to a different kind of disposition. Psalm 33 invites us to embrace that disposition, confidence in God's character, in what he has done for us. May we be a people contemplating who is in control. And may that catalyze considerable confidence in how we live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can trust in your care and in your control and your character, how you relate to creation, how you relate to the nations, and how you relate to all peoples. Father, may we be a people who rightly fear you. May we be a, a people who contemplate your character in all of life. God, may we be a people who sing and who sing as we wait, eagerly anticipating and looking forward to more acts of your redemption.